Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Philia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining us once again. I'm joined today by uh, Mira Kanna. Um, Mira, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sadia, I'm a writer by profession and mm -hmm. a gender rights activist by inclination. But mm -hmm. I think that's uh, nothing unusual because you touch a woman and a gender rights activist comes out of her. Yes. Because women uh, face uh, so, many, so many different uh, vulnerabilities. It is multi-layered and multi-sectoral. So I think um, it be, it's, it's a natural tendency for us to question many of the things that we are asked or told to do. Yes. And I spent the last uh, 20 years volunteering with an organization, with an NGO called the Guild of Service, which mm. was started by Dr. Mohini Giri, who was the chair of the National Commission for Women in India. Mm. We have a, an institutional in, called the National Commission for Women, which mm. looks into all the issues which are related to uh, a, a gender just society. Yeah. Uh, so during the course of my uh, time with the, uh, with the Guild, I have been able to travel the length and breadth of this uh, big country. Uh, mm. Today, the Guild runs uh, three shelter homes. We run five capacity building centers, three family counseling centers, uh, and three schools for underprivileged children. And, combine, and the Guild combines both grassroots as well as advocacy work. And wow. the Guild is also in consultative status with the ECOSOC of the United Nations. So I, I'm actually intrigued. What uh, pulled you into the, this uh, area of work? Um, I was intrigued by what you said, and I think it's very true, but what led you to become involved in, in this area of work? You know, I began my career actually in advertising. You know, okay. yeah. it's, always, it's always very, uh, I'm intrigued at my own self that from this glamorous, yet very hardworking uh, profession of advertising, I walked into social activism. Yeah. But... Um, it so happened that um, when my daughter was born about 25 years back, I gave up advertising because in advertising, there is only a time for you to go to, the, go to work. There is no time when you'll come back from work. And I thought, if I have taken the pain of bearing this child, why give the pleasure of rearing her to somebody else? Yeah. So the first five years... After I left my profession, I just enjoyed motherhood. And believe me, that was a fantastic decision that I made, something yeah. which I've never regretted because it opened up a whole new vista of thinking in my mind. And uh, after five years, I started writing because my, my career in advertising actually started as a copywriter. Right. So I started writing uh, for uh, newspapers and magazines, features and articles. And I think there was a natural bent of my mind to write on gender-based issues. Mm -hmm. You know, questioning, some, questioning certain, certain societal and cultural pressures on women. You know, mm -hmm. it seemed to me, to me certainly unfair. 
and because i was writing on gender based uh, gender rights and gender based issues it became a logical extension to join the women's movement and that is how i started volunteering over the guild of service and it sounds like you guys are doing some fantastic work in in india do you think that you have changed attitudes over the last 10 20 years do you think attitudes have changed around the issues of um domestic abuse sexual violence you know uh women in empowerment do you really feel like that's changing in india the guild of service is 45 years old actually okay. and uh, i will answer your question with, with a both a yes and a no yes in certain places in certain issues it has definitely changed for example half a you know five decades back widows in our country were um, socially uh, you know socially marginalized mm-hmm. and culturally discriminated and economically deprived i mean not all a majority yeah uh, over the years you know and widows had a dress code a diet code a behavior code they wore white they could not move around and there were certain uh, kinds of food that they could not eat this was a uh, nothing of this is written anywhere it was just a cultural tradition something what is called customary tradition but over the years this has t- changed completely widows don't don't necessarily wear white and there is really no diet code now in major parts of this country you see when i talk about uh, Uh, this country you must remember this is a country of 1.30 billion population yes. so i cannot make any kind of generalization which is true for every corner of this country so major parts of this country this attitude towards widowhood has changed completely both socially culturally and also from the legal uh, legal point of view mm-hmm. uh, earlier on women could not inherit property over the years post independence uh, india changed its uh, the succession act women could uh, inherit some property now in 2005 there was a review of the uh, inheritance act and now women uh, daughters can inherit ancestral property as in the at the same level as a son yeah so to that extent things have changed uh, the enrollment rate of girls in schools is very high and the dropout rate is dropping continuously i mean earlier on Where girls would drop out after they age, uh, reach the age of puberty yeah. now you don't see that uh, that kind of a drop there is drop out in some states and no and practically no drop out in many other states yeah. similarly women are earlier on women would only uh, you know go for what would what we call the soft streams you know humanities arts yes. now you have women uh, in technological fields you know taking up science there are they're going in for Uh, aeronautical engineering automobile engineering yeah. uh, you know so there is a lot of uh, change that we see over the years but i think the most important point that i can make out is that women have started questioning certain traditions or certain customs the, and they also have many women are able to assert themselves and change customs yeah you know very often uh, for example this entire question of dowry very yes. uh, dowry was was a was a kind of a bride price now there are girls who are actually standing up and saying that no if the groom wants a bride price i don't want to marry really earlier on the entire expense of a wedding 
was taken by the girl's side. Now, increasingly, you're finding people who are splitting the expenses between the, both the bride and the groom's family. It's a, but the change is slow. Fortunately, the, uh, every successive government uh, that we've had has always um, worked for women's empowerment which is why there has been a change in the laws, particularly inheritance laws. We have a law, which, uh, we have a law on sexual harassment at workplaces. We have a criminal code, which, uh, which, is, which is called the Section 49080, which deals with the death of a, of a woman in marriage. So it, and it is a non-bailable offense. So it is actually the state versus the person. The laws have changed. There are institutional strengths like the National Commission for Women. But... Having said all this, this is also a society in transition. Yes. Because for so many centuries, men in this country have been brought up thinking that they are, you know, they are superior. Yes. So suddenly yes. you have women who are educated, who are capable of standing up for themselves, who are voicing their opinions. So it becomes, there is a dichotomy between yes. what they were taught and what is the reality. Yes. And not everybody can uh, take that kind of uh, uh, can take that kind of dichotomy. And men often think that this is an assault on their manhood that women are now becoming empowered because this happens uh, both in in India and Pakistan actually. So I've spoken to some of your uh, I, I guess colleagues or counterparts in Pakistan that are also part of the Every Woman Treaty. And for me personally, um, like my family is Pakistani and born and raised in the UK, I've realized that even though we have domestic abuse and sexual violence laws in the UK, changing people's ideas and ideals took a very long time. And the, the change that we see in India gives me a lot of hope for Pakistan, but, but I think the fight's a lot, lot harder for Pakistan. What do you think about that? See, the two says, even though... We share cultural roots, both India and Pakistan. The yes. cultural roots have been the same. And we share, we share a common history of colonialism. But the trajectory of growth of the two countries has been separate. Yes, that's true. You know, not only the trajectory of growth, also the trajectory of the political establishment has been separate. I think um, I would be, uh, wouldn't be wrong in saying that for women's rights to be considered, acknowledged and nurtured it is important for a democratic climate yes. because it's only in in a, in, a, in a democracy you are accepting the rights you're actually actually accepting that everyone has a entitlement and a right and a right to the uh, to what the country can offer yes so yes. from that yes. point of view i think it uh, the change in india has evolved because you are actually recognizing rights. But yes. I want to go back to your earlier point about men feeling that it is an assault on manhood. Yes. Uh, but I think that is natural because many of them have been, uh, you know, many of, the, of them have been brought up that thinking that they are God's gift to mankind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and suddenly they are, you know, look at, look at a, a man brought up in an absolutely patriarchal framework where he did not even have to pick up his, uh, his plate after he had had his meal. And yes. then suddenly goes to work and he finds that his boss is a woman. Oh, exactly. It's the most delicious thing to see, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is the most, del- I mean, I love this drama, but I, at the same time, I also understand uh, the, 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 you know, the dilemma that this guy is going through. Yes. Which, which, also, uh, which also reflects in a lot of vi- violence that is happening in the private and the public spaces. Exactly. Uh, India ha- in, in, in India, we, uh, the violence against women, both in public and private spaces, is a cause of major concern to the women's movement. And yeah. it is, in fact, it is one of the points that we push every government on. And in fact, even in the last election, uh, many of the manifestos of the political parties did touch upon this issue. Right. Uh, but having said that, violence is not part of the cultural makeup, but violence has become part of the psyche in to, a, to a great extent. So yeah. to get removed, you, ha- you can have laws, but laws are, can, are preventive. Laws, laws can be protective. The enforcement agencies are there, but the enforcement agencies are reactive. Ultimately, what reduces violence against women is two things. The changing mindsets yes. involved involve I would say three things changing mindsets involving more and more men into this entire question of women's empowerment because yeah. men need to be told that a wo- when a woman is empowered she's not taking over his position she they are only sharing that position yeah. and it is important for any community any nation any family for there to be a gender balance because how can you if you're talking about a, a democratic climate in the home or in the community or in the nation, how can that be when half of the nation is being suppressed or being treated as supplementary agents? Yes. And the third thing, which I think is most important is financial independence. Yes. yes. Because you, because the entire dynamics of violence is based on, a, on, on the uh, premise of power. Yes. And power almost always translates into economic power. Yes. So when that economic power is not solely in the hand, monopolized by a man, then the violence, uh, the degree of violence changes. Having said that, let me also say that, you know, surveys do show that when a woman becomes economically independent, the violence actually increases. Yeah. Uh, so in the first one or two years uh, after a woman becomes economically independent, violence actually increases. Yes. There is a need for the other people of the family to actually accept a woman in a new role. Yeah, and it's very true. This is uh, this makes me think of when um, in an abusive relationship, when a woman is about to leave, she is at most risk of being murdered at that point. Um, so it kind of makes me think of that same sort of um, that same sort of situation because a woman's uh, economic independence is very threatening to the family or the spouse or whoever that abuser is because they have less control the more financially independent a woman is the more likely uh, the more power she has to be able to go actually I don't need to take this and I can survive completely independent of you and I can leave and that is absolutely what any perpetrator would worry about that now this woman has the capacity to think uh, provide uh, and do everything for herself Um, so their position is kind of um, at risk in a way as their abuser or controller or or provider or guardian etc so um, 
economic independence is a double edged weapon in this case because yeah, she at least uh, at least you uh, the woman has an avenue to escape many women in our country may be trapped into an abusive marriage because there is no economic viability for them to move away from that relationship what will i do and who will feed me and her natal family may not be in a position to support her yeah uh, even if they're financially able to support her they may not be culturally uh, attuned to a changing relationship between man and a man and a woman okay. so Absolutely. while economic independence does increase the possibility of violence it also at least keeps the woman safe yeah and i think it's important to catch families in our in our countries that have this kind of mindset around you know women as property and women as as wives you know there's such a desperation to get women married off and only then is she a complete woman it's really important to catch families when those those girls are younger because the older a girl gets there's there's a sense of anxiety in families and communities that doesn't any longer see their daughters as daughters anymore it just views them as somebody who is at risk of um being raped or losing her um lo either losing her virginity because she consensually gets into a sexual interaction or losing her uh, virginity through some kind of assault um and that that governs their every decision i don't think they're able to interact with the idea of female empowerment in the same way particularly if they have those very very outdated views of you know um the a woman is only complete when she's married or that she's only safe when she's married uh, uh two two points come out of this you see patriarchy does equal amount of harm to a man as it does to a woman mm. because within this within this uh, framework of patriarchy the man is always hunter the predator the yeah. sexual predator and the woman is the victim so it does as much harm to the man as it does to the woman because yeah. the entire question of a social balance is the gender balance and the other point that comes out is that increasingly one of the changes that i'm seeing uh, in many parts of Uh, of india is that increasingly women girls are getting married at a later age uh, and particularly in the uh, metropolitans and the a grade towns yes when i say metropolitans uh, is the delhi bombay calcutta chennai uh, yes. uh, bangalore and the metro and a grade towns like hyderabad jaipur so i am increasingly seeing women who are uh, marrying later in life where, where earlier at the you know uh, i think in 1947 you would see girls married at the age of 16 and 17 my mother got married when she was 17 so yeah. uh, you see women getting married at the age of 16 and 17 now you finding girls getting married at the age of 26 and those who are into professions like say being a doctor or a lawyer or a chartered accountant or an engineer they are getting married post 30 which is brilliant which is brilliant which is brilliant because by 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 the time you're 26 or 27 you're making an informed choice on your partner yes and not only are you making an informed choice on your partner you're also ready to take the consequences of the decision that you've taken yeah. so you know being being pushed into a marriage that that is a change 
that I, I am seeing over the uh, last four decades or so. I mean, I would say last three decades. So um, I have one quick last uh, question before we, before we uh, move to wrapping up. You said that in the metropolitan kind of um, the cities that people are moving towards uh, not marrying as young. Do you see that in the rural areas and the poorer areas as well? Has that shift started happening? Or is child marriage and young marriage still a major issue? Uh, uh, no, the shift, I'm not seeing such an evident shift in rural areas. It, it may happen uh, in pockets where uh, girls are moving away from rural areas and coming to, uh, to the cities to study and take up jobs. Because um, over the last um, two decades, there is a huge uh, middle, lower middle class uh, coming up. Uh, you know, in, in the metropolitan. So there, is, so there are girls moving into the metro areas. But you're right that that evident shift I'm not seeing. And yes, we do have this issue about child marriage, particularly in the state of Rajasthan, where on a particular day, uh, child marriages are conducted. But there is, it is criminalized. Child marriage is a criminal offense. Uh, Thank goodness. Time. That was really and, recent, wasn't yes, it? And, it was a fantastic move. No, no, we've, always, we've had this uh, Child Marriage Act even before, but the enforcement has become more and more uh, tough. Brilliant. Uh, uh, in the sense, uh, now it is, um, uh, you know, it's not just the fa two families uh, which, are, uh, uh, which are charged in, under this offence, but also people who attend that marriage are charged. There is a great, uh, uh, you know, public campaign against. Uh, it's it's not. It is the public campaign is not against uh, uh, child marriage as such, but it is it is for uh, a bet. It is called uh, what is the beti uh, beti padao. That means uh, bring the bring the girl child home so that to prevent female feticide, but also educate the girl child. Yeah. And the and there are individual states, for example, uh, which actually gives a incentive if the girl is has passed her matriculation and then gets married which means that she would be at least uh, 17 and if she passes off if she gets married after the higher secondary then she then there's another incentive so there are incentives being given particularly in rural areas to prevent this kind of child marriage but having said that let me say the child marriage is is restricted to certain pockets in our country right. it's not a universal phenomenon yeah before I let you go, what I, I want to ask you, um, what can people, what can the, our listeners do to get involved, to get more information, if they want to help or support in any way? Is there anything that you want to say or, or ask our listeners? I think it is important for uh, listeners to, uh, uh, to understand that any tradition, any custom, any law, uh, any uh, uh, social norm must go through a touchstone of human rights. If, it, if any tradition violates the dignity of a woman or a man, then that cannot be right. Yeah. So that touchstone of a human right must be applied to every norm or custom or tradition. Because I don't think when the world was made, it was ever meant to feel uh, ever meant to be that one entire section of the of the world half of the world 
would be only supplementary agents to be suppressed and oppressed while the others would be the suppressors and the oppressors. And even this entire question of protecting a woman actually is a way of enforcing her supplementary status. Because yes. whom, do you, uh, whom do you protect? You protect someone who's either physically or mentally or emotionally weaker. Yes. So it is not a question of protection. It is a question of rights, being able to give, a, give women the right to be able to stand up, to explore their potential, their talents, and to realize their dreams and to live life on equal terms. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And female empowerment empowers the whole of the country. It makes the world a better place. So that's what we should be aiming towards. But the, the, you're right, the, the foundation of this movement has got to be human rights. Uh, which will which will then steer our our approach. Yeah. So thank you so much, Mira. It was really Bye, Sadia. Take care. Bye bye.